Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. How did some of the most controversial images of modern science become textbook fair? Nick Hopwood explores this question in his impressive new book, Heckel's Embryos, published by University of Chicago Press in 2015. Hopwood is reader in History of Science and Medicine at University of Cambridge. You can see the images Hopwood discusses during our interview in a new online exhibition, Making Visible Embryos, which explores visual culture as part of a Welcome Trust research initiative from generation to reproduction. I'm Laura Stark at Vanderbilt University. I interviewed Hopwood along with two graduate students, Patrick Anthony and Zipporah Champion, as a capstone project for my course, New Approaches to Science and Technology Studies. So, Nick Hopwood, welcome to the New Books Network. This is uh, Laura Stark, and I'm talking with you with uh, Pat Anthony and Zipporah Champion here at Vanderbilt University about your fantastic new book, Heckle's Embryos. Um, and so first, I just wanted to describe this fairly remarkable book to listeners, because it's not every day you come across a book that's 18 chapters, more than 200 images, um, 400 pages, and a weight I actually can't quite uh, estimate. It's, it's quite heavy and large, and it is gorgeous. I think one of the people writing about the book described it as sumptuous. You must be really, really happy with the production of this, given that it's a book about images. Uh, I, I'm, I'm delighted. I mean, the, the University of Chicago Press have done a, a fantastic job, um, and we were very fortunate to have a grant from the, the Getty Foundation that, that made it possible to include over uh, 200 uh, color images. So, so it's really meant that, as you say, it's, it's a book about a family of images, and it's meant that I can argue almost as much in, in pictures as words through the book. In case people are uh, listening or are worried um, that 18 chapters sounds a lot, I, I should say they're quite short chapters. So although the book is uh, nearly two kilograms, um, uh, I hope it doesn't feel uh, too long. And there are lots of pictures to look at on the way. Yeah, the, the pictures seem essential to it. And I also feel like the chapters were surprisingly brief in terms of the 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 body, the prose of it, um, but the relationship between the text and the prose is really uncommon, I feel like, in a lot of academic writing, and just to produce such a gorgeous, sumptuous object. Um, and so you, you. you um, as you phrased it, the book is about a family of images, and it gives us a 150-year history of this particular family of images, but it relates to the work of Ernst Haeckel who was um, a Prussian, German, in the late 19th century, and he was an embryologist, and his people think uh, that they know Heckel, possibly, but you give him some interesting new interpretations, but really foreground the, the life, the production, and the afterlife of the images he produced. So I wonder if you could just start us off 
by telling us about the visual context that Haeckel uh, was working within in late 19th century Germany, and specifically to talk about the influence of romanticism, the influence of debates about specialist privileged knowledge as opposed to popular knowledge, uh, science as popular knowledge, and the, the visual strategies that people used in terms of using serials, uh, serial representations of images as a very common form of visual argument. Yes, so, so Haeckel uh, is this uh, very famous and in some ways uh, notorious uh, German zoologist who's a member of the first generation to uh, attain an independent chair of zoology in a German university in the mid-1860s. And he's been trained um, in uh, university courses that... Um, use a wide range of visual aids to um, introduce uh, the, the forms of organisms to students. Um, they were very much uh, schools for sight, these university classrooms. And in a way, what he's going to do is take uh, images from those classrooms and display them to a much uh, wider audience. But that had already uh, started to happen um, by the time that he himself, as a as a child, as a youth, uh, is reading uh, illustrated books produced with the new uh, uh, techniques of the relatively new techniques of lithography, wood engraving, uh, produced more cheaply for for a larger audience. Um, and you mentioned uh, serial images, and the, 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 these uh, images that the book is about, these, these embryos, are an example of uh, a serially organized image. And that was, um, that, that was something that became uh, particularly prominent in the decades around uh, 1800, um, images of uh, a series of, of all kinds, but most importantly, uh, embryological series that represented uh, the course of a pregnancy or the development of an animal uh, in a, a, a series of uh, uh, images representing uh, progressively more advanced stages. And this these then became uh, some of the most uh, important uh, uh, representations of progress in the 19th century. One of the things that you show is that using series was a common practice, and at the same time that the way that Heckel used series was very innovative in that he used what um, the, the images that became iconic, as you argue, um, were the, the embryo grid images. And so it's interesting to see how, despite the fact that there were conventional practices, there was a way in which to be novel in this context. And uh, so here I'm going to hand it over to Pat to uh, talk with you more about Heckel and the embryo grid. Okay. Hey, Nick, this is Pat. Um, Hello. So Heckel's probably most famous for this phrase, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny meaning that the development of the embryo expresses the evolutionary history of the species. 
So I'm wondering if you can tell us about how the, his Heckel's embryo grid illustrates this concept um, and also how this embryo grid reflects 19th century ideas about progress in nature, teleology, and the great chain of being. Okay, so I mean, let me let me start by by just trying to to paint a picture of this grid so that everyone knows what we're talking about. Perfect. Um, these are these are images that, in their canonical form, um, uh, have rows and columns. The, the columns represent vertebrate uh, classes or species, uh, culminating in in humans, and the rows. Um, represent developmental stages from a relatively early to a relatively late stage. Um, and the, uh, in the most developed forms of, of the pictures, the, the top uh, row, um, all the embryos look pretty much the same. Uh, that, that's evidence of, of common uh, descent for Heckel. And then uh, they diverge uh, down the page uh, towards the adult forms. Um, and so that is the, the most striking thing that the pictures show. One of the revisionist arguments in the book is that it's, it's maybe a mistake, um, but don't worry, it's one that, that specialists have also made, to assume that since Heckel is famous for ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, the idea that we climb our evolutionary tree in the womb, um, because he's famous for that, these uh, embryo grids must primarily illustrate that concept. Now, it is a concept that runs through his books. Um, since uh, fossils weren't so available, embryos were extremely important evidence of evolution. It's also true that uh, we can see examples of uh, recapitulation in the grids. Um, but it's not the most obvious point. The, 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 the point that really leaps out um, is that the embryos start similar and then diverge. Um, and that's also, I mean, that, that's what it's fundamentally about. It is also supported by the reconstruction I've done of how the grids were built up uh, initially from uh, pairs of drawings. Um, so, that are, that are put together and actually only become a grid in the second edition of Heckel's History of Creation, the, the book that does more than any other, perhaps, to take a developed Darwinist system to uh, the, the reading public. We're talking now from, from the end of the 1860s through to the, the First World War. Um, so, so ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That is a very important frame, but pictures have a life of their own, and they're not just readouts of the theory. Um, in a way, they're, they're, they're more general um, and more open to different kinds of interpretation. I think that's one reason that they lasted so long and could be used by so many different people for so many different purposes, including sometimes uh, against Heckel. You use the wonderful phrase flexible resource to describe uh, what is I take to be the main point of the book was to try to understand what makes images successful. So thinking about the story of these images as flexible resources, 
they were often attached to the man and the character of the man, uh, Heckel, who was, uh, he's now known for being an embryologist, for being Germany's uh, sort of most well-known supporter of Darwinism, and also a supporter of, of popular education for science, and also as a forger. But I... I really admire the way in which you recast the very conventional questions of, uh, of basically rendering a judgment on Heckel's forgery by asking who is making these charges and um, what was the context in which these charges were, were taking shape. And one of the interesting things you show is that it wasn't just in specialist circles. And in fact, the immediate aftermath, the, the charges came up relatively late. Um, the immediate aftermath uh, happened and then was sort of shut down within specialist circles. And it really only opened up at the first inflection point of the three that happened in this book. So around 1875, 1909, and then 1997, this first inflection point was really um, taking place in a broader popular context. And it was not just the embryo images that were contested. So I'm wondering if you could set us up what was happening in 1875. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, the, in a sense, paradox that, that drives our, and the book is uh, that these uh, embryo grids are some of the most widely seen uh, embryological images and some of the most uh, famous uh images of evolution right through the 20th century. But Heckel is accused of forging uh, these uh, these uh, pictures and others um, very early by uh, colleagues who um, don't necessarily oppose uh, the theory of evolution, but do oppose uh, the um, interpretation that he gives to it and the uses that he makes of it. Um, and so, yes, you're absolutely right. I've tried to um, stand back from the question, well, so did he forge them? And uh, what does that mean for Darwinism? Um, I mean, I do uh, give an answer to those questions. Uh, Heckel behaved as recklessly with these illustrations as he did with uh, everything else, but there was no uh, intent to deceive and he had very little to gain from it. Um, and, and of course, uh, modern uh, molecular evidence uh, provides uh, even more support for, for Darwinism than, than Heckel could have imagined. Um, but, but what I look at between the, the first uh, charges in 1868 and when the debate really takes off, that, that first phase of intense controversy in 1875, um, I look at how initially it, the people who are really in control of this are the German professors who teach uh, embryology um, and who have to decide whether they're going to uh, come out against Heckel's images or, or not. Um, and as, as you said, it takes a while for this to, to take off um, for, for various reasons, um, but uh, to a significant extent, because the majority of the uh, teachers of embryology see the pictures 
in their argument for uh, similarity among vertebrate embryos as confirming something that they already knew or at least thought that they ought to remember from those uh, lectures that not all medical students had, had really enjoyed. Um, so it takes quite a bit of work by Heckel's critics, and especially the uh, Swiss anatomist and physiologist, uh, Wilhelm Hiss, to argue that um, not just is Heckel wrong about uh, using embryos as evidence of evolution in the way that he does, but he's also um, uh, played fast and loose with the truth in his um, uh, illustrations. And actually, he argues that uh, for this, Heckel should be uh, practically excommunicated from the uh, community of, of, of researchers. Um, what's at stake there is an extremely important uh, disciplinary dispute. Um, over how embryos should be studied. I mean, should they be primarily uh, evidence of phylogeny, of, of evolution, or should, or should they um, be, be studied physiologically to try to understand the, the mechanisms in the here and now by which one stage becomes the next? Um, and those are really two major frameworks for uh, late 19th century life sciences that, are, that clash here um, in, a, in a particularly important way. So, so that is, that is, you know, everyone who accuses Heckel of, of forgery and who will over the following uh, years and decades has some axe to grind against him. Um, and, and that is the, the, the most important one initially. Um, but it's given added charge because this is a time when um, middle-class readers in Germany are um, learning about Darwinism, uh, and it's the main uh, phase of, of, of the reception of, of, of Darwinism in Germany, and Heckel is the, the leading figure in, in, in promoting this. Heckel was the German Darwin, as he's often called. Um, that what? is happening. And, oh, and, I, and at the, go ahead, Nick. And at the same time, um, that there is uh, a, a, a very big controversy between uh, the church and the state in which Heckel is fighting and a lot of concern uh, among uh, uh, professors in the sciences um, that they, they want to uh, negotiate a, a relationship with the state in which um, they're free to research but agree not to um, uh, teach uh, controversial uh, topics, especially involving religion, um, and, and Heckel is riding roughshod over that, and that's, those are really the things that are causing a lot of trouble. Yeah, you have this wonderful phrase that really resonates with the, the recent objectivity debate, so thinking of the work of Dastin and Gallison, but your phrase of learning how to see uh, depended on learning what to see. So the issue of what's happening in this debate and then um, what forms of visual representation are, are uh, privileged and prioritized is the way in which this is playing out. You give a really remarkable reinterpretation of this controversy, and here I'm going to hand it over to Pat. Yeah, I'd like to draw some attention to Chapter 7, Visual Strategies, and 
This is where you challenge Lauren Dastin and Peter Gallison's argument that the debates between Ernst Haeckel and Wilhelm Hiv can be seen as a clash between the virtues that scientists associate with competing types of illustration, what Dastin and Gallison called truth to nature and mechanical objectivity. But you've argued that these debates were not so much about scientific illustration as the conduct of the scientists in presenting those illustrations. So could you tell us how your argument differs from that of Dastin and Gallison and, and also what's at the heart of the uh, tension between Heckel and his? Dastin and Gallison are surely right that uh, some of Heckel's rhetoric uh, illustrates uh, opposition to mechanical objectivity. Um, I just don't think that that was the main issue here. And I, I don't think they disagree with me. Um, what I think is going on um, is uh, partly that Heckel is engaged in a, in a defense of, of morphology against the increasingly quantitative uh, physics-oriented physiology that was his main disciplinary enemy and that, that Wilhelm Hiss uh, represented and is really trying to import those approaches into embryology. I think that the second point is, is that, that larger issue about the, the limits of science and the kind of restraint that, um, that, that scientists should practice. And that does link to uh, the mechanical objectivity argument, but it's, it's quite a bit bigger. Um, and that's the basis on which Hiss is intervening and criticizing uh, Heckel's use of evidence and with a very strong moral charge. Where I've tried to um, go a bit further than, than what especially Lorraine Baston has written about this case is to say that um, ideals and even practices of drawing are are all very well and are very important, but, but of course, th these are not projected directly to readers. Um, uh, so what we're, what we're seeing when we look at their books are the products of the much more practical uh, activities of printing and publishing, uh, the different ways that pictures could be put on the page. Um, and so that's, that's what I explore in that chapter, really, looking at uh, two of the um, most uh, famous and important books in the history of uh, embryology, uh, Hackle's Anthropogeny and uh, The Letters on the Form of Our Body by Wilhelm Hiss, and exploring those as, I think, rather daring experiments with genre and illustration that... Um, kind of create a very different uh, relationship of readers to, um, to the, the pictures uh, corresponding to the different uh, attitudes that, that Heckel and Hiss have. So, so here, just to give one example, um, here's his book where he's talking about a very mechanical way of understanding the embryo um, and, and how it develops from one stage to the next. Um, contains very uh, vivid physical uh, illustrations that um, that are designed, I think, to um, uh, really give the reader a sense of um, what what it might mean to um, to fold up the tissue and and make uh, organs out of it. 
in thinking about the the ways in which publishers and um, and uh, translations worked, it seems like in thinking about the successful the success of an object or a, a family of images is especially interesting in this case because as you show in the the sort of second inflection point in around 1909, this relates to the the production of the sort of cheap pamphlets in which. The uh, the images from Heckel, the embryo grids, actually start to become iconic, as you as you say, based on the seventy the eighteen seventy four image. And so it's interesting to see what that does to historical interpretation. Instead of seeing the uh, the seventy four embryo grid as all, always already iconic to see how this actually only happens 35 years later. Um, and part of this happens through the uh, reproduction and the reworking of the embryo grid in different national contexts. And so in addition to the impressive um, historical length of the book, you also expand out into the, the translation and the publication in the U.S., and the UK, not only in German-speaking countries. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the role of publication um, in these broader national contexts for sort of stoking and reforming the controversy about the images. Yes. I mean, as you say, the, the key point is that um, the pictures don't become famous uh, just because they're in a book by Heckel. Um, it is the ways that they're copied uh, into other books by him, including into these uh, relatively high circulation uh, pamphlets, um, but also into uh, other books about evolution and into encyclopedias. So that that's what uh, lets them at least take the first uh, step on, on, on the road to becoming uh, iconic. Um, and that happens in, in interestingly different ways in the English-speaking world and the German-speaking one. Um, so uh, in, um, in, in, in Germany, um, Heckel is... Uh, is is very well known, um, and uh, it's also rather well known that um, he's taken some liberties with his illustrations. So, um, especially when this second phase of intense controversy uh, takes off, as you say, in 1909, when when this really does become uh, front page news, the question of forgery. Um, the, the pictures become so uh, hot to handle in a way that um, uh, although some supporters continue to use them, uh, there's, there's really no way that they're going to be introduced into textbooks in German schools. Um, uh, it's, it's extremely uh, controversial that, that Darwinism even be taught in schools, partly because of the controversies involving Heckel. Um, in the United States, by contrast, um, Heckel, although uh, by the early 20th century, very famous too. I mean, he, he's the most famous uh, living evolutionist uh, worldwide by that point. Um, 
and the details of the controversies are not so well known. And although it's known that he takes uh, liberties with illustrations, um, th th those thoughts are not really attached specifically enough to the embryo grids. So, so they are copied into high school textbooks from as early as 1900 um, and have a long then and very successful life in uh, American high schools and, and colleges. Um, so so it's, it's going to be quite a different story in, in the different uh, language contexts. And, and that, of course, provides some of an answer to the, the paradox that I mentioned earlier. How can the most controversial pictures in the history of science, and they really are extraordinarily controversial in, in hundreds of, of magazine and newspaper articles and several independent publications, how can these incredibly com, uh, controversial pictures um, become standard textbook illustrations in the, in the 20th century? So, so, so that's partly why it was important for this book uh, to um, to deal with the the anglophone literature as well as as well as the German. Yes, and especially in uh, because we're talking to you from Tennessee, the uh, the Scopes trial, Tennessee versus Scopes, is is uh, especially resonant still here. And you use the phrase content cloning to uh, think through what is happening with the u the use and the reworking of the the images despite the fact that you would think that textbooks would stop using them. And what you seem to be arguing is that it's not just the, the sort of the default, uh, the mindless copying, as Stephen Gould would have it, but that, in fact, this has to do with, again, various publication strategies and the context of, um, of, of both public, public education and uh, Darwinism and creation debates in the United States. Um, but one of the other ways in which the uh, images continue to be copied. And so this seems to be the part of the essence of what makes a successful image is that it's not just one, one image that's um, preserved and that there is an original, but actually how many there are. And so that seems to be the, the paradox that you're showing. One of the ways that this happens is through the ways that standards are set that not only are in negative response to Heckel, but actually absorb Heckel's images, so thinking about the normal plates um, and the standards produced in that way. So I'm going to hand it over to Zipporah for this question. Hi, Nick. So in Hello. speaking of no, uh, normal plates, could you just walk us through some of the standards that uh, were created during that time, especially around that area? Yes. So Heckel's pictures are, as we've been saying, uh, very successful because they are copied uh, into uh, so many places and will have this long life. But they're also important and perhaps more surprisingly for the uh, effect that they have on, um, on, on specialist uh, images in embryology. So an argument that I make in, in the book and I'll be interested to see uh, to what extent uh, my colleagues will accept this. Um, I make the argument that the disputes that Heckel launches um, so destabilize embryological illustration in the 1870s, especially of human embryos, 
uh, in which there is understandably most interest, that his opponent, Wilhelm Hiss, um, as part of a uh, monumental work, which really founds uh, human embryology as it will be practiced for much of the 20th century. Um, in that work, Hiss uh, sets up a, a, a new kind of uh, visual standard, a so-called uh, normal plate, plate of norms that, that, that represents uh, individual uh, specimens um, as uh, as, as a kind of standard against which then uh, new specimens can be assessed. And uh, this kind of standard is uh, reworked by later generations, uh, including by, by experimentalists who, who have somewhat different interests. And ultimately, those become the normal stages that, that are still used in uh, every uh, developmental biology laboratory today. So there's a way in which Heckel's uh, pictures that you know, some people dismiss as merely popular, just a teaching, not to be taken seriously. Um, they're actually, I mean, they're always for a dual audience of, of uh, his peers, the, the, the professors and, uh, and lay people. Um, but, but they, I think, goad the, the production of the most authoritative uh, and standard images. So, so one one effect that that then has is that when when later researchers are looking at Heckel's pictures, they're they're also judging them uh, by these standards that have actually been set up uh, very much against uh, what what Heckel was doing. So so that's the story with the the normal plate. Yeah, and in thinking about how or what makes an image especially iconic is that um, sort of the 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 phrase for an unknowing pornography is you know it when you see it. Um, but actually the strange thing about iconic images is that you know it before you see it. So this seems to be one of your claims about um, the, the, the peculiar way in which some images, including these embryo grids, are iconic, is that people uh, have standards which were in part come out of those images themselves when they first uh, um, experience the images. So it's really one of these interesting... Um, reverberations that you show. And the, the image just keeps on living. And this comes up again in the later 20th century. And your final inflection point in the book uh, comes in, again, the national context in the late 20th century. Here's Pat. Yeah, so you show how in spite of the controversy and maybe because of the controversy surrounding these images, they survived through the 20th century and even into our own. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about these most recent public appearances of Heckel's embryos in 1997 and 2010, and, and what these reappearances tell us about the social life of images. Yes, so these uh, embryo grids, uh, having been uh, copied in uh, initially especially American uh, textbooks uh, through the 20th century, even in uh, books that are adopted in, the, in Tennessee in the immediate aftermath of the Scopes trial, um, and, and are copied in, in other countries as well. Um, but there is one important class of book that they've hardly been copied into, and that's books devoted to embryology. 
they only, as far as I can find, uh, enter uh, embryology books uh, in the early 1980s. So from there, uh, as uh, developmental biologists became more interested in the whole problem of embryology and evolution, which had been rather neglected in the middle of the 20th century, um, they start copying these pictures uh, more widely, including into quite advanced, uh, into, into review articles, symposium volumes, and, 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 and quite advanced textbooks, um, and maybe looking at them more carefully. And so that's how it comes that in, in 1997, a British developmental biologist, uh, in ignorance initially of all of this history, um, and he wasn't unusual in being ignorant of it, um, he, he accused Heckel of forgery. Uh, this is this is Michael Richardson in, in, in London. Um, and he had an axe to grind as well, in the sense that he's arguing um, uh, against the impression created, especially by the first row of Heckel's images, that, um, uh, that there is a conserved stage at which all vertebrates look the same. Uh, Richardson is arguing that that's not right. Um, that's an impression created by these pictures. Um, that actually natural selection is, act, is acting on that stage too and producing uh, diversity. Um, a lot has changed by the time these, this, this forgery charge is, is made. It's picked up in the Times newspaper and from there in other newspapers and in Science Magazine then in the United States. And from there, uh, the uh, newly much more powerful uh, neo-creationist uh, movement for intelligent design um, latches onto this uh, controversy. And really the combination of scientists now uh, being reluctant to, to, to use the pictures and creationist pressure around uh, textbook uh, adoption decisions and the like um, leads the pictures finally to be taken uh, out of the textbooks within a, I mean, in some cases within within a weeks or months, but, but, but pretty broadly within, within years. Um, that doesn't mean that, that the pictures suddenly go away. In fact, it, it's, it's now with uh, this huge controversy, uh, uh, ways of arguing where we expect to see a picture when we hear an argument about a picture. Um, and the takeoff of the internet uh, mean that the pictures are suddenly more available than they have ever been before. In a way, it's, it's only now that they really become icons. Um, of course, for the advocates of intelligent design, they're a kind of negative icon. They're, they're an icon of, of Darwinism, uh, as a forgery. Uh, they're, they're no longer uh, uh, icons of evolution in a more positive sense. But, but even this, you know, I, I have to say, when I first finished the, the book manuscript, when I finished the first draft, I, I thought this was how it was going to end. I thought, um, well, they probably will survive, but only in uh, this sort of creationist use of them and People like me, historians of science, will use them, but, but they're, they're almost excluded from biology. And then at the end of uh, 2010, uh, as, as you indicated, the pictures are reproduced, not just anywhere, um, but in, in perhaps the, the most sought after space in the whole of science publishing, the cover of Nature, um, the, the International uh, Weekly Journal of Science. 
Um, and they're reproduced there um, in a very unusual form, uh, made up of a mosaic of stained uh, fruit fly embryos to argue that uh, new genomic uh, techniques had uh, confirmed uh, the existence of this uh, conserved stage that, that, that the Heckel is associated with. So, I mean, what that really, really shows is it, not just that pictures can hang around for a long time, but but that uh, they, they are copied because of the rather specific ways that that um, they can be used to make arguments, and and it shows how they're not just hanging around, but they're they're still involved in innovation. Um, this mosaic was was quite a, an innovative thing to do, and actually this cover um, spawned a, a software program that can be used to produce other mosaics. So they're they're really involved in visual innovation. Uh, you know, 140 or so years after they were were, were first produced. So, um, so, so that's why I was pleased to be able to, to end the book on this 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 case this this um, this case that, that that encapsulates what I call the shock of the copy. The, the we, we perhaps tend to think of copying as derivative, unoriginal, boring. What what this case shows is um, just how uh, creative, uh, contested, and, and consequential it can be, how much uh, this can matter if we want to understand why we see particular pictures uh, in particular places. It's a really nice recursive uh, point that you make, that we expect to see an image when we hear an argument about an image and these images um, live on today in 2015 in, in your own book, in Heckel's Embryos. And so here I'm going to hand it over to Zipporah to wrap us up. So still on the point about the recycling and reemergence of images, I was wondering, how do you think your, the image has evolved or even found its own life with your own creation and recopying of the embryos? That's a nice question. Um, I, th I think that's why I'm I'm so pleased that it, it was possible to include um, so many pictures in this book, because what it's meant is that I can, in various ways, uh, contextualize and, and recontextualize these pictures. Um, it's being said that iconic images gain their power by um, casting into the shade all of the other uh, images that were were produced around the same time, and and so that's how Heckel's pictures can come to stand for the whole of uh, comparative vertebrate embryology. Um, something that would have uh, shocked and appalled the, the, the expert comparative embryologists of his day. Um, by, by putting them in the context of the pictures that Heckel copied to make his own, um, other pictures that were produced around the same time, and then the various copies that were produced uh, from his images, 
um, and at the same time to 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 to, to marshal um, uh, visual evidence of the ways that they were produced, the ways that they were read in different uh, places at different times. Um, I'm not trying to rob them of their iconicity, but I, but I am I am trying to uh, open them up, uh, make them an image that we can look at again, and in a way turn them from a kind of dead icon that we just take for granted, like surely generations of uh, school children did in in those textbooks, into an image that is is not just controversial and doesn't just have to do with with where one stands on 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 Darwinism, um, but that can help us understand uh, how some images out of the uh, thousands that are produced uh, succeed in, uh, in in monopolizing a, a, a topic, uh, coming to stand for a whole domain of knowledge. Nick, thank you so much. You've been incredibly generous with your time, and your book is so much more than Heckel. It's um, a really incredible, I think, theory of visual representation and material culture and so much more. So thank you for talking with us about Heckel's embryos. Thank, thank you very much for, for reading and, and for all your, your questions, all, all three of you.